0: in a word of prayer and personal. The God is a God who is near. He is a God who is a personal God who can be known. And uh, we see that from the very beginning when God created man and woman and put them in the garden, that he walked with them in the cool of the day. He spoke with them. He communed with them. And there was this fellowship. And this is what the gospel is restoring by the grace of God, that we might be reconciled to our God that we might know him. And David, in Psalm, I think it was 63 that we looked at, um, prayed and said that, Lord, you are my God. And we are able to say that as believers. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Luther said that the Christian faith is is all summed up in personal pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. And uh, so we are thankful that this salvation that... We have eternal life is that we might know the true and the living God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We considered how we know God. God is one who's revealed himself in the creation around us, even fallen as it is. The heavens declare the glory of God. It makes known his glory. And whether we look in a microscope or a telescope, we we see the fingerprints of God in the greatness of his creation That it is shouting to us. Uh, his greatness. And then we also have, um, I think, a revelation of something of the nature of God in, the, in man's constitution, who we are. Because what do we read in Genesis 1, but that when God made Adam and Eve, he made them in his own image. In, in the image of God, he created them. There is something in the constitution of man that reflects something of the God who made us. And again, we still have that image on us, though it has been greatly marred by sin. So when we get to Genesis 9, we are not to murder because man is made in the image of God. James 3, 9, I think it is, we're not to curse a man or a woman. We're not to curse them because They are made in the image of God. So there is yet within man this image. And that's why we are protective of the life in the womb because it is sacred. It is an image bearer. And so as we look at even fallen men, we can see glimpses of the God who created them. Um, We see in personal relationships that we enjoy We see love between human beings, and this is a reflection of the God who has made us. We have minds, and we have ability to build things and make things, and these things are a reflection of the creator God who who designed and purposed and created and brought things to pass, and it's a reflection of his glory. When I look up in the sky and I see Amazon Prime, ...cargo planes flying over, I look up there and I say to myself, this is the glory of God that's being reflected, how that big cargo plane, bringing all of the cargo, is able to fly. It's an amazing thing, but it is reflecting men who have minds that have been given to them, and they're able to design and make things and build things and make a plane like that to fly. Whether they they don't know it and probably don't think about it, but they are declaring, I think, the glory of God. They're reflecting something about the God who made them and whose image they have been made. But, of course, it is in special revelation that we find the revelation that God has given of himself, particularly in the person of his son. And Jesus said, all the scriptures speak about me. They point to me. In John 5. So how do we know God? Well, it is through natural revelation. We learn things about him, his divine nature, his power, his eternality. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't speak to us about the gospel. Um, we look in man's constitution, see something of God there. But it is in special revelation that we see the grace of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God um, in, in the word of God. So in this study, now we want to consider what God is like. Millard Erickson, in his systematic theology, divides up uh, theology proper in two main divisions, what God is like and then what God does, what God does, his works, that God plans, God decrees. should be no surprise to us that, that God himself has a plan. He doesn't shoot from the hip. But he's a God that is working out an eternal plan, an eternal eternal counsel from before the foundation of the world. And then his works, originating work is creation. And then God's continuing work is his providence. And we'll talk about that in weeks to come. But when we think about what God is like, he divides it up into two categories. The greatness of God and then the goodness of God. These he calls natural attributes, the greatness of God, and then the goodness of God, moral attributes. Um, so these natural attributes relate primary, primarily in relationship to himself, who he is. And then the goodness of God, or these moral attributes, um, relate to the world, He relate to to God and the world around him. And Millard Millard Erickson says this, we must make a distinction between the acts of God and the attributes of God. Several methods have been employed to classify the attributes or qualities of God. We have chosen to follow the classification that differentiates his greatness and his goodness. Sometimes these attributes have been called his natural attributes and his moral attributes, respectively. So this is kind of the pattern I want to break down that I'd like to follow as we do this. Sometimes systematic theologies will break down the attributes of God to communicable attributes, which is attributes of God that are shared with men. We talk about a communicable disease. If you have a communicable disease, that's something that can be shared with other people. We hope not, but it can be shared. But an incommunicable attribute is an attribute that God alone has that we do not. And we'll talk about some of those here tonight. So the greatness of God, we want to consider some of these natural uh, attributes. First of all, he is a spirit. God is a spirit. And here in John 4, I'm assuming some knowledge of this passage. Uh, This is Jesus with a woman at the well having this conversation with her, and she asked the question in verse 20 or 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I guess so. He knew how many husbands this woman had had, and the one she's living with is not her husband. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She's a Samaritan up in Samaria, um, and they have a place of worship there. And you, Jews, say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming And now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here is the statement that is given by Jesus concerning the character, the nature of God that. He is a spirit. And even though God had inhabited, as it were, the tabernacle, the temple in the Old Testament, the days coming, he said, when you don't go to a place. God is a spirit. He doesn't inhabit a body. He is one who is a spirit, and you don't go to a place to get to God. First um, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the king eternal, immortal invisible, this invisible God, the only wise God be honor. And it tells us in Hebrews eleven twenty seven that by faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It's a reminder, isn't it, that we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk based upon what God has revealed to us of himself. And Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the Pharaoh, because he saw him, as it were, who is invisible by faith. So as we think about God, he is a spirit. Now we know that there are times in the Bible where God, God uses the Bible uses terms that would refer to God as almost being like a human being, having body parts. Uh, can you think of some? His arm is not too short to say. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. Now, there are several more, but these are what we call anthropomorphic terms, just a big word that helps us to understand a little bit about who God is by using human analogies. And uh, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body as we have. Um, but this helps us to understand something of him. His eye is upon us. He sees us. He knows us. And then we have theophanies, and theophanies are divine visitations where God comes and communicates in a human form often and gives encouragement or gives direction, Uh, and all of these usually evoke worship. When Joshua is about to go into the Promised Land, take the city of Jericho at night, there is this man that is standing before him and uh, he asks him, are you for us? Or are you against us? There's a sense of, of terror here as he sees this one with a sword. And uh, he says that he is the commander of the army of the Lord. And it tells us that Joshua fell down and he worshiped him. Many believe, as I do, that it was a Christophany. It was a It was an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in a human form. Again, to communicate and to give help to Joshua as he's undertaking this huge task of going in and casting out the the people of the land of uh, the promised land. So God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body as we do. As we think about God, he is also life. If you just look over in chapter 5, And verse 26. We read there. For as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son to have life in himself. There's a statement made about the father. Jesus says that the father has life in himself. This life is something that is an underived life. It is a life that. We would say is an eternal life, and uh, it is something that is self-existent, and that's what I want to consider tonight as we think about this. Um, Turn, if you will, to Exodus 3, and uh, again, I think we all know pretty well this chapter and what's going on with the children of Israel. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They have not heard from their God for all this time. They have handed down to them the things that were told to the fathers. And here they are, prisoners and slaves in Egypt. And God raises up Moses to be the one to lead them out of slavery. And um, he is being called to this task. Again, this is uh, a huge task. You remember that Moses fled from Pharaoh's house Pharaoh's not happy with him. Um, And here in the wilderness, there is this very strange thing. He notices a bush that is burning. And he's probably seen that before, shrubbery, fire, or whatever. He's probably seen that before, but something's different about this bush. What was it? It's not consumed. Because usually, you know, when I go in the backyard and burn my Christmas tree, it's like... it's flash and it, it's gone. It'll singe your eyebrows real quick, but then it's over. But here is this bush that is burning and it is not being consumed. And this rightly call, caught the attention of Moses. And it is here that God tells him to take off the sandals off his feet. And God speaks to him out of this bush. And God saying, Moses, you're my man. I want you to go and deliver My people out of Egypt, I've heard their cry. The 400-year period is over, and he promises in Genesis 15 he would bring them out. The day has come. Moses is the appointed one to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And so God calls him to go down to Pharaoh and to bring his people out. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? so he said i will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that i have sent you when he you have brought the children of uh, the people out of egypt you shall serve god in, on this mountain and then moses said to god indeed when i come to the children of israel and say to them the god of your fathers has sent me to you and they say to you or they say to me what is his name What shall I say to them? So here is Moses asking God, what what name should I say uh, of this God, our God, who has sent me? Now, a name in the Bible, particularly when it's used of God, is not just to identify him. It is often a revelation of something about his character, who he is. So so we have names in the Bible like El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. And we have the name Jehovah Jireh. He is my provider. And here the name that is given, which is a reflection of something of who God is, is this rather strange name, we might think, in verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So you go down there and say, when they ask you, what's the name of the God that has sent you? You say, I am that I am. And this name is, this, this, this statement that is given here is a present tense Hebrew verb. I am. This became the, special name of Israel, of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And you just say that I am, that I am. I am. He is, this speaks to the eternality of God, that he is, he has always been, and he will always be. So we're reminded that this God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has always been, and he will always be. He is the eternal I am. And the whole universe and everything in it has a beginning, but not him. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been, by the way, this is the only psalm in the psalms written by Moses. It's interesting what he says as he begins this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. I think at this uh, this encounter with God, he was impressed with this aspect of God, that he is the everlasting God. Um, Psalm 102, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have No end. So as we think about the eternality of God, it's hard for us to get our mind around this, that the God of the Bible, the God, the true and the living God, has no beginning. So we look to the past. He has forever been. No beginning. We look to the future. He will have no end. Try to wrap your mind around that. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is inscrutable. But he is eternal. So along with that, we have the fact that he is self-existent. He is eternal. He's uncreated. And he has existence of himself. Um, There's a Latin word that is often used if you read some... um, Commentaries, it's the word, I don't know if I say this right, aseity. Is that the right word? It's a Latin term that he exists from himself. Um, this is the aseity of God. Um, all of us, all of creation, we have a derived existence, right? We have a birthday, um, and we have a derived existence. And This is true of God, that he does not have a derived existence. He has always existed of himself. A lot of people, a lot of unregenerate people will scoff at that. You know, everything has a beginning. It has some kind of, you know, that's irrational to speak like that, that God is self-existent. And I like this quote by R.C. Sproul. He said, the notion of something being self-existent is not only rationally possible, it is rationally necessary. It's not just rationally possible, it is rationally necessary. Reason demands that if anything is, then something must have within itself the power of being. Otherwise, there would be nothing. Unless something existed in itself, nothing could exist At all. So the question why is there something instead of nothing? It's because of the great I am who exists and has life in himself, in the self existent. He is the uncaused cause of all things. There's no cause to his being, there's no beginning, he's not derived. He is eternal and he is self-existent. He has life within himself. And this is the cause of everything else. It all comes from him. So he is self, he is eternal, he is self existence, And further, we could say he is self-sufficient. Or we might say that he is independent. We are not self-existent and neither are we self-sufficient, but God is both. We in all of creation are, we are dependent, though we often think otherwise. Now, just think about some of the things that we're dependent for our existence. We need the earth to be the exact place that it is from the sun so that we don't burn up or we don't freeze. We don't have anything to do with that, do we? Now, we think we can deal with global warming and we can bring about changes, but... But we're dependent upon God to keep us exactly where we are at. We need gravity to keep us on this earth so that we don't just float away. We need fertility. We need the earth to produce food. We, again, are, are not the ones that bring it about. We're dependent upon the earth and the rain that we received this week, a golly washer, if you were where I was. It was something. Um, we need our heart to keep beating Something like 60 to 100 times a minute, your heart's beaten and you're not even thinking about it. But you're not the one that's keeping it beating, are you? It is God who is sustaining our life. We need oxygen. So Paul can say this in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, that in him, that is in God, this unknown God that he's preaching, in him we live and move and we have our being. And we live at his pleasure. It is he that sustains us. Need is not a word that we ever associate with God. He's not a needy God. We are needy creatures, but not the creator. So again, on Mars Hill, Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in the temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life breath and all things he does not need us but we desperately need him whether we are aware of it or not A.W. Tozer said that God has a voluntary relation with everything that he has made but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself he didn't need us when he created us He was the perfectly happy, eternally happy God in the triune fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He did not need us. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure. Not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness that they can bring to him who is complete in himself. So this God is eternal. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. And all of these things he is immutably, which is just a big word to say he's a God that is unchangeable. He cannot change. Wayne Grudem says that God is unchangeable in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. A.W. Pink said, God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. So God says through Malachi, in Malachi 3.6, because I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob, you're not consumed Every good, James says, every good and perfect gift comes down from, our Father of light, from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation and there is no shadow of turning. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. We have a God who will never change. His promises, his character, his purposes, his perfections, they will never change. And what a wonderful illustration here for Moses as he's ready to go down into Egypt. Here's this bush that is not being consumed. And it's a living parable. It's a parable as he watches this and sees this. This fire that is burning is not burning because of the bush, it's independent of the bush. Any fire needs fuel, doesn't it? Whether it's gas or coal or wood or whatever it is, it it needs a fuel to keep it going. But this bush is not the cause of this fire. It is not that which is sustaining it and causing it to burn. It's not the bush that is sustaining the fire. It is the fire that is independent of it. So God is independent and he is self-sufficient. And I think that's an encouragement to Moses as he goes. This God who says, I am going to go with you, Moses. I will be with you. And this is what I am like. And this is the God to whom we belong. This God who is eternal. This God who is self-sufficient, not dependent, not weak in any way. And he's unchanging, So many times we hear people preach and it's almost that we pity God, that he's some weak God who needs us, but it is just the opposite of that. And so here is Moses and God appears to him and I'm with you and I will be with you. And so it is with us that our God is with us. And who is a God like him? So, Tonight, we thank God for this revelation that he's given of himself to us. And I pray that it encourages our heart. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer.